Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. This is the Gospel Feast Podcast for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. We're coming near the end of our study of the book of Daniel. We've learned much about the history that Daniel foretold, that Daniel recorded, the visions, the wonderful visitations by the Lord himself. Now we come to the most important part, our day. Let's feast on this part together. We've got through Daniel, Peter. We did it. This is where I like to say, where angels fear to tread is where the fool rushes in. We have seen the great ideological, hypocritical hoops through which the self-anointed must jump in order to reinvent Daniel away from its divine simplicity. The lies they tell themselves in order to see what they want to see and force God into their own reflection is narcissistic, sad, and frankly deceitful. We have seen that the fullness of the gospel proclaimed millennia before its event was restored exactly as foretold that this cleansing was sealed with the best blood of its generation, and that because of Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints, the scriptures beloved by millions but not understood were literally fulfilled. 
We have seen the same gospel embraced and rejected anew every time a set of missionaries two by two, like in days of old, knock on a door proclaiming the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have seen holy things revered and openly mocked. We are living and witnessing a miracle which prophets and holy men greater than us longed to live and see, but did not. It is a time that even our Lord on the cross longed for when he looked and beheld his generation. We are the most blessed of mankind. Having lived to witness the miracle of life in the sanctification of the altar, to use Daniel's term, we are left with the obvious questions. When is the second coming of our Lord, and what else is yet to come? And I know we talked about this already in one of our question and answer episodes, but this will be an expansion of those thoughts. Now, hindsight is twenty twenty. it's true. And it's easy to comment on the past and sit in a high seat and look back at how dumb our ancestors were when they were unable to see the signs. Children of the millennium will likely ask the same question. How is it that our forefathers, living in the fullness of times, could not read the signs all around them? Until the events yet to come are part of the past, we are forced to endure some speculation. And we've talked already about my philosophy on speculation and what we are going to practice in terms of speculation in this podcast and in all the Gospel Feast series. To speculate, we must delve into that dangerous territory of speculation. Speculation is only dangerous for those who spend a lifetime convincing themselves that only one way can be right. You and I are not going to fall into a speculation's trap by stating from the onset that we candidly accept that our speculations could be wrong. We are also going to openly accept that no amount of self-convincing will allow our testimonies, gained through truth, to be dismissed in any way by our speculations. If our theories are wrong, they're wrong. It is the gospel that is still right. With this firmly in mind, we are less worried about speculation and more interested in the voyage of discovery that follows from heeding the Lord's counsel to study things out in our own minds. I believe it is a slothful servant who must be commanded in all things, and it is truly the spiritually starved who refuse to feast at the Lord's abundant table. Any truth-seeker who knocks at heaven's door with a humble heart will not be turned away. The heavens are open, and you and I have been invited to knock, sup, and rejoice. There is nothing wrong with studying and forming a prayerful opinion. The danger only comes when one allows personal opinions to supplant the gospel standards and the gentle rebukes of priesthood authority set over us to guard the crossroads. Again, we will admit before we even start that we are on a voyage of discovery, and whatever mists of darkness or rivers of filthy water we cross over, we will not let go of the iron rod. The subject of our now safer speculation is to see if we can determine the time of the Lord's second coming, or at least make an educated guess. We pause for someone at the back of the room who is raising their hand in objections. We already know the objection, because like any simple Sunday school answer, it is always brought up by the well-intended every time the subject is mentioned. The objector will ask us to turn to Matthew 24, 35. We will pretend to thumb there as we ask them to read the passage aloud. Matthew 24, 35 and 36. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Our objector will then point out, needlessly, that it is a useless endeavor to speculate on the second coming, because not even Jesus knows the date, only the Father. Without saying so specifically, they are suggesting that we shut off our minds and stop thinking with our brains. I realize this fair objection is based on Scripture, so we will need another equally reliable source if we are to proceed. How about the prophet Joseph Smith? Here's what he said on the matter. 
Christ says, No man knoweth the day or the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Did Christ speak this as a general principle throughout all generations? Oh, no. He spoke in the present tense. No man that was then living on the footstool of God knew the day or the hour. But he did not say that there was no man throughout all generations that should know the day or hour. No, for this would be in flat contradiction with other scripture. For the prophet Amos says that God will do nothing but what he will reveal his secrets unto his servants the prophets. Consequently, if it is not made known to the prophets, it will not come to pass. So with that in mind, I do state that I do not know the exact date of the Lord's return, but I can engage in a little dangerous but educated speculation. Please note all of this reasoning could be wrong. We are not going to run and live in a muddy tent by the Great Salt Lake and eat old wheat from a can, but rather trust in the promise of Amos that the Lord will tell his secrets to his living prophet prior to the event. And we being faithful will make the preparations necessary, as we are told and foretold to do so by our ordained priesthood leaders. Let's begin the speculation. We begin our study of Daniel with Isaac Newton, so it is fair to begin our speculation with him as well. The man who invented calculus spent a lifetime trying to mathematically figure out the date of the Lord's return from the clues left to us in the Bible. In the end, he said that he was convinced the Lord must return before the year 2060 AD, but could pull it no closer. When he finally admitted that he could get the date no closer from what he had, he set down his quest in disappointment. He had realized, as Daniel did, that he would not live to see his maker in the flesh. A sad realization for one who admired the handiwork of the Lord, as only the inventor of calculus could do. He would not live to see the purification of the religion he loved, nor his Lord in the flesh. But I am convinced that you and I might. In our previous episode, we learned about the great disappointment and the fervor caused by William Miller and others over the year 1844 interpreted to be the Lord's return. The prophet Joseph Smith, being a man of his time, was very aware of the fervor Miller was causing. In fact, to the Mormons, it was both a distraction and a blessing. The blessing came in that the world was watching the signs like the night the stars fell and studying books like John's Revelation and Daniel's writings. This led the honest in heart to read the Book of Mormon and embrace the Restoration. For others, it caused them to get caught up in Miller's movement, its misinterpretation of dates, and in the disillusionment caused by such. It was a fulfillment of Nephi's lament that many would say, A Bible, a Bible, we have the Bible, we don't need anything more. Also, the Lord's announcement that many would say, I don't need to be baptized again into the Restoration and Kingdom. I was already baptized by my pastor, and that's good enough for me. Well, good luck with that. Being the only man on earth with the direct promise that the Lord would answer any question posed to him, and knowing, as Amos knew, that the Lord would never make a move without informing his prophet, Joseph inquired as to Miller's mathematics, speculations, and scriptural interpretations. This is the cause behind Doctrine and Covenants 130. He said, I was once praying very earnestly to know the time of the coming of the Son of Man, when I heard a voice repeat the following, Joseph, my son, if thou livest until thou art eighty-five years old, thou shalt see the face of the Son of Man. Therefore, let this suffice, and trouble me no more on this matter. I was left thus, without being able to decide whether this coming referred to the beginning of the millennium, or to some previous appearing, or whether I should die and thus see his face. I believe the coming of the Son of Man will not be any sooner than that time. I have always loved this story because it is very much in keeping with my own personal experiences with the Lord. 
Our Lord always means what he says and says what he means. And when he doesn't want to be exactly quoted, no one is more genius at saying so. It is always after the fact that the truth of his words kick in. At first, Joseph assumed that he was going to live until his 85th year, and so he did a little math. The prophet was born 1805, so 85 years plus is 1890. That must be it. Then the spirit whispered to Joseph, and he realized the words. I was left thus without being able to decide whether this coming referred to the beginning of the millennium or to some previous appearing, or whether I should die and thus see his face. I believe the coming of the Son of Man will not be any sooner than that time. In other words, the prophet had one of those moments where he said to himself, Wait a minute. This could mean many different things. The Lord had both answered him and not answered him. But Joseph knew enough that when the Lord says, Trouble me no more on this, you let it go. The brilliance of the prophet's deductive mind here should also be noted. He realized that what he had wrestled from the heavens was the promise that the Lord would not return prior to 1890, and that the national fervor Miller was causing would end in disappointment. Thus he boldly taught on more than one occasion, I take the responsibility upon myself to prophesy in the name of the Lord that Christ will not come this year, 1844, as Miller has prophesied. I also prophesy in the name of the Lord that Christ will not come in the next 40 years. I find this interesting because there is a second number at the very end of Daniel which we have not yet explored. Daniel 12, verse 12. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred five and thirty days or, in Jewish thinking, 1,335 years. We have no way of knowing when this time period begins, but if we assume it is connected to the 1,290 prophetic years ending in 1844 AD, then we have this. 1,335 minus 1,290 is 45 years. Mid-1844 plus 45 years is mid-1890, give or take. Joseph said that the Lord told him that if he lived to be 85 years old, he would see the Lord's face. Joseph was born December 23, 1805. 1805 plus 85 years equals 1890. True to form, there were many Latter-day Saints in Utah who chose to read Doctrine and Covenants 130 as the opening of the millennial reign, rather than Joseph's other suspicion that it meant something else. Like the Millerites of the 1840s, they were eager to meet their Lord and be done with the evils of this beastly ruling classes. If they felt so then, how much greater is our desire today, when no man can truly buy or sell without the great beasts or government's approval? Instead of losing their faith, however, when 1890 came and went, they continued on. We will let Benjamin F. Johnson express the feelings of many Latter-day Saints at the time when he said, We were over 70 years ago taught by our leaders to believe that the coming of Christ and the millennial reign was much nearer than we believe it to be now. There is another thought to consider in connection with Daniel's prophecy, that great blessings could come upon the heads of those who made it to the end of the 135,000 years. If we assume this period ends 45 years after 1844, what does this give us? Indeed, a miraculous history of blessings poured out upon the Church of the Latter-day Saints, building on the foundation of the fullness restored under Joseph Smith's hand since his death, we as a people have built an oasis in the desert, founded our own state with all a state's constitutional powers, found profound financial security, 
redeemed millions upon millions of our departed kin, built worldwide temples, launched an astounding international missionary ministry in hundreds of languages, sent goodwill and charity in the name of Jesus Christ around the world, started the first radio ministry, published millions of copies of the Book of Mormon and the standard works of the Restoration. We can list more than this. There is no place on the entire globe that the Latter-day Saint work of God has not reached in some fashion. Indeed, the 45 years after Joseph Smith's death have been amazing, and the years following them were more amazing still. Ponder a moment on this. Finally, God's children were safe at last, free both in body and mind in our mountain home with temples all around and modern conveniences making life sweeter while the desert blossomed as a rose. It is difficult to deny or find another answer to this prophecy that makes any sense. Those of us who made it to 1890 AD and beyond would be the most blessed of Israel since Nebuchadnezzar dragged the nation into bondage. Again, we are the most blessed of God's children. Around the turn of the 20th century, safe in our stakes of Zion, it became clear that the Lord was not going to return officially until after Y2K. It was then that the traditional millennial calendar began to make more sense. Admittedly, it seems obvious in retrospect. Why would the Lord return prior to the calendar opening of the seventh seal? But again, hindsight is twenty-twenty. The Lord has repeatedly taught us that we are to watch the signs. By them we will be able to judge the season. It should have been clear to the Millerites of 1844 and the handful of saints in 1890 that the signs given had not been fulfilled. At that time there were still many. For the saints, the most obvious one has to be the official conclusion of worldwide missionary labors. The Lord himself said that we will not see his second coming before he declares an end of missionary work. As of this date of this podcast, there are almost no end-time signs remaining. There are a couple. We have lived to see obscure ones fulfilled, like Stephen Douglas's running for and losing the presidency of the United States, and the official formation of more than seven quorums of seventy. And it appears we have lived to see major ones as well, such as temples dotting the earth and this. At the opening of October 2001 General Conference, a date that mathematically should be very near the opening of the seventh seal of John, President Gordon B. Hinckley said, You know, we actually have the recording of that October uh, 2001 General Conference. Let's play it. My beloved brethren and sisters, Wherever you may be, welcome to this great world conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are assembled in our wonderful new conference center in Salt Lake City. I wish all of us could be assembled under one roof, but that is not possible. We have become a great worldwide church. And it is now possible for the vast majority of our members to participate in these meetings as one great family, speaking many languages, found in many lands, but all of one faith and one doctrine and one baptism. The era in which we live is the fullness of times spoken of in the Scripture when God has brought forth together all of the elements of previous dispensations. From the day that He and His beloved Son manifested themselves to the boy Joseph, there has been a tremendous cascade of enlightenment poured out upon the world. The hearts of men have turned to their fathers 
in fulfillment of the words of Malachi. The vision of Joel has been fulfilled, wherein he declared, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaidens in those days will I pour out my Spirit. And I will shew wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord shall come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Wait a minute. Did we hear the prophet right? This has been fulfilled? Remember, we are in the speculation chapter, and so it is fair to speculate. The signs President Hinckley was referring to are the signs of the sixth dispensation, or in John's mystic Eastern thinking, were the closing signs of the sixth seal. Our course of study here is not John's revelation yet. That is a subject for another feast, but in order to speculate to the best of our ability on the second coming, we have to explore at least one verse from the Apocalypse of John. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. In other words, the millennial year would open and it would appear as if nothing had happened. It would seem that the Lord delayeth his coming, or that the time of the sixth dispensation had been extended. Scholars agree that mathematically a half hour of heavenly time is equal to approximately 21 years of earth time. But you will notice that it says about a half hour. It is interesting to note that secular Christians, by and large, believe that all of the cosmic signs given for the return of the Lord are to happen one after another in rapid succession. In other words, the moon shall turn to blood and the sun will go dark just before the Lord's return. It was thinking such as this that led many to believe that the Lord would return shortly after the events of the night the stars fell. Amazing sign after sign with no return of the Lord has led many to grow skeptical that he will ever return. They missed the fact that their skepticism itself was a sign. While many threw away the God of their fathers to embrace so-called modernity, or as Daniel put it, the God of forces, others saw the signs as proof that God was again communing with man. These faithful began to search the scriptures and increase their prayers for guidance. Guidance came in the form of Mormon elders, two by two, preaching the restoration of the gospel. I owe much to faithful ancestors who read the signs and searched the word for the promised restoration. Every member of the church, whether old family or new convert, owes their latter-day blessings to someone who shared it with eyes to see and ears to hear. It is easy enough to find conversion stories where young men and women found the restored gospel by harking to a dream or vision from the heavens. It is also easy to find those who read the Book of Mormon, prayed sincerely about it, and received an outpouring of the Spirit. We have seen wonders in the heavens. I remember as a young boy playing night games with my friends and looking upon a blood-red moon. I ran into the house and told my mother that I believed the end was near. Blood-red moons have become such a frequent occurrence in the sky today that few people even take a second look. 
That leaves one. Has the sun ever been turned to darkness? The answer is yes. It is known as the day of darkness. Here is Noah Webster's witness of the event. May 19, 1780. So called on account of a remarkable darkness on that day extending over all New England. The obscuration began about 10 o'clock in the morning and continued till the middle of the next night, but with differences of degree and duration in different places. The true cause of this remarkable phenomenon is not known. The animals were all in confusion. Roosters crowed throughout the day-night as if to remind the sun to shine. It was so dark that people were unable to read or go about their daily business without candles. Many rushed to local churches, where their hearts failed them as they pled with the Lord for mercy in the day of judgment. The famed American poet Whittier even penned a poem about the experience. It read, in part, "'Twas on a May day of the far old year, 1780, that there fell, over the bloom and sweet life of the spring, over the fresh earth and heaven of noon, a horror of great darkness like the night, in a day of which the Norland sagas tell, Men prayed and women wept, all ears grew sharp. To hear the doom blasts of the trumpet shatter, the black sky and the dreadful face of Christ, might look from the rent clouds, not as he looked, a loving guest at Bethany, but stern, as justice and inexorable law. The night following the dark day was also strange. It was eerily dark and unnatural. The Boston Gazette at the time said it thusly, Perhaps it never was darker since the children of Israel left the house of bondage. This gross darkness held till about one o'clock, although the moon had fulled but the day before. Witnesses said that not a single star could be seen in the sky, and it was as though the moon, which should have been full that night, hid her face. I personally believe that the sign that the gospel would be preached to all the nations has also been fulfilled. That does not mean that the missionary work is over, just that the sign that all nations would hear it is. I know the objection that the church has not been officially welcomed into all geographic borders. If one holds that as the meaning, then no, we have not. But such a reading is not in keeping with celestial thinking, eastern thinking, nor scriptural terminology. A nation, in heaven's view, is not a geographical border defined by man one day and then changed the next. Throughout all scripture and heaven, a nation is a bloodline. These bloodlines are officially laid out in the table of nations found in the book of Genesis. The celestial reasoning is this. When the Lord returns, he is coming to claim the earth, it's his after all, as the firstborn heir of the father, and to claim his wife, the bride Zion. Zion is the family of man redeemed to perfection. Such a symbol would not be possible unless all the blood of man was represented. Today within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, all the bloodlines of man, and by all I mean all, are included within the body of Christ. At his coming, his Asian, African, Arabian, American Indian, Caucasian, Germanic, Latino, and Polynesian bloodlines, all dressed for the wedding feast, endowed with marital gifts, bearing their genealogies, will be here to greet him, lest his coming be a curse to wax Old Testament. It is also my belief that God has sent many of his greatest children into all the families of man in order that his second coming not be a curse. Having lived in the Los Angeles stake of Zion for a season, I have learned and witnessed the testimonies and conversions of every conceivable ethnicity. Some of the hurdles of cultural tradition over which these children of God have jumped to embrace the truth is mind-boggling. 
Their prize, and mine to witness, has been the faith and priesthood power to undo the traditions, curses, and spiritual chains, some as old as the beginning, and bask with their kindred dead in the glory of Jesus Christ. It is no small thing to stand at an altar of the Almighty, bearing the blood of the mighty men of old, even men of ancient renown, and undo the power of Satan in the house of God. I am convinced that God reserved many of his strongest spiritual children to come at this time into all bloodlines, sending them into bodies of those bloodlines that are difficult because he knew they would be strong enough to overcome all the prejudices around them. They see through the traditions of their ancestors that were wrong and have the faith to embrace the truth despite every satanic attempt to stop them. The Lord's coming wedding feast will be truly a multi-ethnic celebration and a glorious one. In the Doctrine and Covenants is a very interesting couple of verses given at the founding of the Restored Church of Christ. Doctrine and Covenants 21, verse 1. Behold, there shall be a record kept among you, and in it thou shalt be called a seer, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the church, which church was organized and established in the year of our Lord, 1830, in the fourth month, and on the sixth day of the month, which is called April. To give credit where credit is due, it was the late historian Dr. W. Cleon Skousen who said, If the Lord is going to use 1830 AD, then I am going to use it. The point he was making is that the Lord set the date and time for many of the milestones of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints precisely. He has been adamant that certain events take place at certain times and in certain years. He has also been adamant in making these dates openly known and recorded. Dates like the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, the establishment of the Church, the dates of certain temple dedications, and the months of our semi-annual World General Conferences, to name a few. Is there anyone among us so dense as to think that this has nothing to do with his precise and perfect heavenly clock? Anciently, it was Israel's calling to guard and keep the Lord's calendar. The first of the year started with the new moon of early October. The Jewish civil new year still begins in the first days of October. We also know that the Passover and the rebirth of Israel out of slavery into freedom, a religious new year, was celebrated during the first days of April. The fall was a time of thanksgiving and harvest, a time of judgment and renewal for the coming year. The spring was a time of refreshing and mercy from the long winter, a time of planting, growth, and coming expectations. It should come as no surprise that the Lord would call his Latter-day Saints to gather for the harvest and for the renewal. These times in the calendar were set by him as the first days of every April and October. We also know that the earth has been granted a week of the Lord's days, or seven 1,000 earth year periods, in which to remain in its fallen state before it begins a new week. Each of these 1,000 year days have been called a dispensation, since God has declared that each day the gospel would be redispensed to earth anew. In heavenly thinking, this means that every day the Lord wakes and starts his day's work fresh again, only to watch Satan mess it up by day's darkness. Of course, we know the Lord does not sleep, but don't miss my point. This is the meaning of the Lord's comment, sufficient to the day is the evil thereof, both in the heavenly and the earthly sense. Each day, with the light of dawn, we have a chance through repentance to try again anew. A new dawn is the Lord's mercy after a satanic night. As a general rule, each of these new dispensations of the gospel have started near the beginning of their day, Adam started with Adam, Enoch's started with Enoch, Noah's started with Noah, Abraham's started with Abraham, Moses started with Moses, and the Lord started, according to John, in the year 30 AD. 
Joseph Smith's administration of his dispensation did not start near the year 1100 AD as one would have expected from God's pattern. It started 800 plus years into it. When asked why he was given so short a period compared to every other prophet, Joseph was taught that by sliding the last dispensation in as close to the second coming as possible, the Lord would be able to build his last kingdom up faster than Satan could tear it down. That old devil would simply not have enough time to do what he had done every previous 1,000 years, destroy the church by evening's close. This is the kingdom which hit the feet of Nebuchadnezzar's metallic man and would eventually fill the whole earth. The point being that mathematically the church was to be restored during the sixth day, or as John the Beloved would have called it, the sixth seal. This sixth seal, or Friday if you want to use the week, should have ended in the year 2001 A.D., The rolling in of the millennial year should have happened somewhere around the 4th of October, give or take, 2001. John the Beloved recorded the following about this tremendous event. Revelations chapter 8 verse 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Logically, silence is juxtaposed against noise. Notice two things. First, at the opening of the seventh seal, or the start of the final day of Earth's biblical week, the day the Lord should return, there would be a delay or silence for half an hour. It should begin after the noise of the sixth. If our speculation is going to have any value, we have to look to see if there was any great or noisy worldwide event that could have happened in the weeks in or around mid-September to mid-October of 2001. Did anything happen? Do you remember? as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. Explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way! For those who are quick to roll their eyes and say, oh please, I would remind you of two things. First, that we are only speculating. And second, many said the same of the Lord when he fulfilled Daniel's prophecy and entered Jerusalem on his exact day of visitation. Just what does a real sign look like to men with no faith? It is my opinion that the attack heard around the world in the city of New York on September 11, 2001, closed the noise of the sixth seal. I think Isaiah thought so too. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 18. Thine heart shall meditate terror. Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver? Where is he that counted the towers? Assuming our speculation, we can say that there will be about 21 years added to 2001, to give us about a half hour of heavenly silence, before the angels really begin to pull the world apart. So if the world gets to rock and roll quite literally sometime after October of 2022, when will the end be? While studying archaic Jewish writings from the Babylonian captivity, I stumbled upon a tradition that gave me chills. The Jews of Babylon believed that the year 2030 A.D was a year of deep importance to the future Messiah. Moses explained that every 50th year was a year of jubilee, a year of renewal, thanksgiving, and peace. 2030 is exactly four jubilees from 1830. Despite any speculations, we have been told that the ending of missionary labors is the sign that will start the great testimony of nature foretold by the Lord. Then it will be but a short time to usher in the Lord's great wedding feast, the official second coming. Specifics can be found in the writings of God, both modern and ancient. We will just have to wait and see. 
I suspect to repent and be there. I suspect to see you there as well. And because we are studying Daniel, let me offer up one last noodle-scratcher just because I can. The word Allah actually appears in the book of Daniel. It is part of Daniel's famous prayer of supplication. See if you can find it in this scripture. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. Did you find it? It's the word translated here in English as curse. The word means curse in Hebrew. Daniel knew that the children of Israel are cursed when they choose not to hearken to the voice of their Lord. What is Israel's greatest curse in these last days? Now here's the fun part. This word Allah curse occurs in Daniel 9.11. What type of wordplay or game would you indulge in if you were a seer like Daniel, from whom nothing was hid? We can't close without one last warning. It's natural for men to try and hedge their bets with insider knowledge, either that or sit on the ground despondently because the future is known. The Lord's disciples faced this reality when the Lord told them that there would be a new heaven and a new earth at his return. Their response was, well, what's the point of doing or planning anything then? His reply to them is his reply to us. Occupy until I come. In other words, plan as though I am not coming anytime soon but live as if you expect me tomorrow. After all, our speculation could be wrong, and you've got stuff to do. So the wisest reply is, yes, sir, get going. This concludes our feasting on Daniel. Uh, we will next feast on the book of Jonah. Now, Reed insists that Jonah is not understandable outside of the restored Christian teachings, and I can't wait to see what he's talking about. We look forward to season two of the Gospel Feast podcast, The Book of Jonah. We just want to say that our podcasts aren't reviewed and commissioned or endorsed by any religion. This is our opinion and our comments only. Rationale for fair use of copyrighted items used. We acknowledge that some of the items included in this podcast are owned and still under copyright protection by others. United States copyright law allows authors, scholars, educators, newsmen, and others to use and reproduce another's copyrighted works without permission under certain guidelines. Courts have determined that there are four basic uses. While not required to do so, we will here state one of the uses that we are claiming. Fair use law allows fair use when copyrighted material is being used to make a specific educational, research-based, scholarly, and or critical comment on the work being used. American courts have said, This is needed in free society since knowledge and history could not advance if copyright holders had the right to refuse use for any reason. They would therefore be able to control knowledge, which is counterproductive to truth. (laughs) 